welcome to those who are joining us online this morning as well. We're glad to have you with us. One year ago, today, we were all incredibly sweaty because uh, it was really hot the day we moved in. And um, it's hard to believe that it's been a year since um, all of our stuff got moved in, and now it's all back in the garage because our house, is, the basement's being worked on, and so it's kind of funny. We're right back in the same place we were. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. That's where we're going to start out this morning. Um, I can't believe it's been a year, um, and I... I will say this again, I've said this before, we've never been loved uh, like this by a church before, and so we want to know that as thankful as you say you are for us, we are just as thankful for you and for uh, what you've been to our family in the last year and what uh, you're going to be in the future, because I, I still believe that our best days are ahead of us at Hope Bible Fellowship, and I'm really excited about that, and that's what this replant series that we've been talking through, that we've been going, excuse me, going through, you haven't been, I've been talking, uh, is all about. You know, a few years ago, I joined a coaching cohort. Now, pastoral circles, uh, there are these things called coaching cohorts. You probably have them in maybe your uh, position as well. Um, but basically, someone will set up this cohort and you will gather together once a month or once a week, just depends, and you will basically kind of further your education a little bit in real practical matters of ministry. And um, there's some that are free and there's some that you pay for. Uh, and anyway, a few years ago, I was in one with a guy named Jared C. Wilson, who's an author. He's a seminary professor. He's a former pastor, um, a well-respected, uh, just member of the evangelical community. But uh, there's a few of his books that have been really key in my spiritual growth and my understanding of what a church is and what it does and why and what a pastor is supposed to do and be and why. And if you want to go deeper on today's topic, then I would highly recommend the, the book, The Gospel-Driven Church by him, by Jared C. Wilson. Uh, many of the ideas I'm presenting today, uh, he helped me to understand and presented them in that book uh, and does a better job than I'm about to do uh, as well. So I would commend that work to you. The, the things about it, though, are these are principles from Scripture as to what a church is supposed to be and why a church is supposed to be centered grounded and driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today we, we're going to jump into this week three of replant series, and we're going to look at, as we relaunch, as we replant really, Hope Bible Fellowship out into the world, what it means to be a gospel-centered, gospel-driven church, because we are gospel-driven. That's who we are, that's who we're going to be, is a gospel-driven, gospel-centered church. Now, I will likely use those two terms, gospel-centered and gospel-driven, interchangeably. So don't let that confuse you too much if I use those uh, phrases um, in the same way. But anyway, in one of his books, Jared Wilson tells a story about the time he resigned. He had been the pastor of a church for about 10 years, and he resigned to go into the academic arena and work at a seminary. And he had people as... If you've not been a pastor, you won't have experienced this, but people drop by to give you their parting thoughts uh, or parting shots in some instances. And one woman, he says, came in to get some things off her chest. She sat there with him and she aired all of her grievances with him from his personality to some of his particular theological views. And some of it, he admits, were things he couldn't do anything about, and some were things that were just, he said, were just made up out of whole cloth. 
So, but he sat and listened to her because he wanted to honor her without judging her, which is commendable. But he didn't want to debate or defend himself. He decided to just sit there and take the punches that this lady was giving him. And then she said something that he called the absolute worst thing that she could have possibly said in that moment to him. She said this, We know, Jared, that the gospel is your thing. Of course, he was pleased to hear this. He was incredibly happy because he had, he had strived to preach the gospel and he loved the idea of being known as the pastor whose thing is the gospel. And yet she continued. So she said, we know, Jared, that the gospel is your thing. But sometimes we need to hear other things. He writes that at this moment his heart sank within him. See, he'd spent years explicating the good news of Jesus Christ from God's word. He'd made the case for what he words, the thoroughgoingness of the gospel, the need for grace in all of life for the saved and the unsaved from the same word. But somehow she either hadn't heard or didn't believe. And she seemed to be saying to him, yeah, yeah, of course gospel, but what else you got? The most disheartening thing out of everything he heard that day was this. It was that she thought the gospel was not enough. Friends, I've heard similar sentiments in churches before. It's like people think you graduate from the gospel. They say things like, yeah, I got that. We, I just want meat. I want meat. I want things deeper. Yes, you want meat. But you don't get the meat without the gospel because the gospel is the meat. You don't get get to graduate and move on from the gospel. The gospel makes all of your other meat mean something. If all you get is a bunch of spiritual tasks without the gospel at the very center, then they don't mean anything and it just goes into a bunch of legalism. You didn't show up at church to get in a bunch of spiritual tasks for the week. You didn't show up here because you need more to do. Most people, we don't need any more to do. You didn't show up here because you thought you could, hopefully, because you, and, and if you did, I'm, I'm going to tell you some really good news, okay? Maybe you showed up here and you thought, well, if I go to church, I do all the right things, I could just be close, I could just be close to God and maybe that'll be enough to get me into heaven, Well, I've got good news for you. There's no amount of work you could do to make yourself good enough to get into heaven. It is only through the death of of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place for our sin that we are able, and trusting in that and his resurrection from the grave, that we are able to enter into relationship with God, that we are able to experience salvation from our sin. But before I get ahead of myself, let's look at the passage for today. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 11. This is uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And he writes this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? God, uh, we need your help. God, we, we confess we can't understand your word without you working in our hearts. Holy Spirit, without you opening our minds and our hearts to your word, reveal yourself to us. Help us understand the meaning Help us understand how it applies to our life and to our church. God, if there's anything that's just me, I I pray you just clear it out, God, and that you would speak clearly to your people in your word. Help me not be a distraction. Help us to behold your goodness, your mercy, your love, your justice, even your wrath, so that we understand what we are saved from. Help us to trust you no matter what, Jesus. May you increase here. Be big here, Jesus. May I decrease. And you get the glory. This is for you, Jesus. It's about you. It's not about me. It's not about anybody else. It's about you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So Paul here reminds the Corinthian church of something. He reminds them of the gospel. This is something he regularly did. If you read uh, any of Paul's letters, any of his writings in the New Testament, he would regularly remind Christians of the gospel. I read someone uh, this week who said that preaching is actually the continual uh, re-evangelization of the church. That preaching is the continual re-evangelization of the church, in fact, reminding hey, this is the good news of the gospel. This is what we have in the gospel. This is how we live in the gospel. This is, it is the continual re-evangelization of the church. And Paul reminds the Corinthian church of the gospel, and he says the gospel that he preached. This is the gospel that he preached to them. It's what he proclaimed to them. And it's good to be, it's good to be reminded constantly that it was excuse me, that it was the proclaimed gospel that they believed when they first heard. It was what, excuse me, that they heard when they first believed. My tongue is getting ahead of my brain. All right? It is good to be reminded for them that this is the gospel. He's saying, hey, when you believe this gospel, this is the gospel that I preach to you. Now, the word that's used there in the Greek, I know you guys love the Greek, okay, is euangelion. Which, which is the word we get for gospel there. And what euangelion, right there, I'm obviously not Greek. Uh, euangelion, what that means is good, you, and gelion, which is like announcement. Okay? So it's like the good announcement, the good proclamation, the good news, we call it. 
because it is good news. So he's saying to remember that great thing that was announced to you, the gospel, that we can have freedom from our sin in Jesus. Remember that good announcement. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this brings us to a very important thing that we need to uh, we need to deal with because I'm using this word gospel a lot. So we got to answer the question, well, what is this good news, this good announcement, this good proclamation? If we're going to center our lives and our church upon it, if we're going to be driven by it in everything we do, we probably better have a really good understanding of it. So what is the message of the gospel? God, man, sin, redemption, resurrection. You can, that's, that's your, that's your, your, minimized version. Let me explain. Number one, God, perfect creator, holy, just, pure, no evil in him at all. He created man. He created man and woman and put them in the garden. And man and woman sinned. They disobeyed God because they wanted to be like God. And so they sinned and and they ate of the fruit that he said, you can have anything else in this whole beautiful garden, anything else, but off that one tree, and they ate off of that tree. And sin entered the world, and ever since then, human beings are born with a nature of sin. Sin is not something we do only. It is something that is on us, something we have. It is a very nature that, given the choice between two options, we are going to lean towards the, the evil one, the wrong one, at our very basic nature, if nothing else happens. And some of you are like, well, gosh, you know, pastor, I've always thought people were kind of basically good. Um, no, that's not true. And I can tell you it's not true because if you take two toddlers and you put them in a room with nothing else, you clear out all the furniture, clear out everything out of the room, it's just a blank room, and you put two toddlers in there, and you throw one toy in, and then you close the door, what's going to happen? Somebody's coming out crying, right? All the moms are like, oh yeah, I know exactly what's going to happen, right? You know why? Because we're sinful. So, The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and it goes on, but hang with me for a minute here, that the wages of sin is death. So because we have that sin nature, we're separated from God because God is completely holy, and sin can't be around a holy God, right? Just be incinerated. And so so if we are sinful and we are separated from God and can't be with God, there had to be some thing to cover that sin, to take it away, to pay the price for that sin in order for us to be reconciled to God, to be able to have that relationship with God as Adam and Eve had in the beginning where they could walk in the garden with God. And the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so something had to die. And it, for years, the Israelites Uh, They had the Mosaic law and the sacrificial law that was instituted, and they would sacrifice animals on the altar to cover their sins, but it was insufficient. They had to keep doing it year after year after year. And so God provided a perfect once and for all sacrifice 
that would never have to be replicated because it was perfect. And so God sent Jesus, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man, to earth. And he lived a perfect life. He lived a life in your place, in my place, that we couldn't live. Because he never sinned. He didn't lie. He never cheated. He never fought with his brothers in a sinful manner. He was perfect. And he was murdered. He, He willingly gave his life and was killed. Willingly going to the cross in our place. Because you see, sin... Because God is just, sin must have wrath applied to it. The wrath of God must be poured out and will be poured out on all sin. And so because we have sin, we are in the direct line, the the firing line of the wrath of God. But Jesus willingly went to the cross and for all who believe in him, who trust in him, he absorbed the wrath of God that was due us in our place as our substitute. He took our punishment. And if we trust in him alone for salvation, that that sacrifice was sufficient, we can have life. Life eternal with God. We can have abundant life even here where we serve him free of sin. We just sang it. No longer a slave to fear. Because as a child of God, we don't have to be afraid. It's the message of the gospel. And oh, by the way, Three days after he was killed, he rose from the grave. And you know what that shows us? That shows us that God accepted that sacrifice as being good for once and for all. That no one else need to die for sin. Because Jesus did. That's the message of the gospel. This is the message that Paul preached. Next, he says that they had received. He was reminding them that this is the message that when I preached it, you received it. You took hold of it. You believed it. And he was expecting them to hold to that message because they had received it. The idea of receiving is taking it in, right? It's taking the message in. They had received it. They had believed it. They had trusted in it. And it was the message that they had received. Then he says, in which they stand. The gospel was not just the message that they believed, oh, and I'm saved and now I can move on to other stuff. No, it was not. It was the message that they believed that they had received and in which they would stand. It was the message which sustains them. It's the message which sustained their convictions, which made it possible for them to hold firm to what they had believed. And it was the message by which they were being saved. And then he adds these qualifiers at the end, right? It's the message by which they were being saved if they hold fast unless they believed in vain. And you're like, whoa! When you read that, it kind of, like the mental brakes kind of slam on a minute. Wait, what does that mean? If they hold fast unless they believed in vain. Well, the end of this verse, it seems like a qualifier that Paul wanted to add after making such a strong statement about these locked-in benefits the Corinthians had in the gospel. But he gives this caveat not to deviate from the gospel. What does it mean to believe in vain? Well, it's defined in this way. 
it speaks to being without careful thought or without due consideration or believing in a haphazard manner. Those who do not persevere in the gospel have no true claim on the promises of the gospel. And Paul assumes a person who has confessed Christ will remain faithful to that confession. However, he does give this hint that is tragic. And that is that not all who publicly say, hey, I follow Christ, end up actually following Christ. There are false believers. Now, people who agree with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and those who reject it both typically agree that someone who doesn't persevere is not a believer or possibly never was. They may have believed in vain. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints simply says this. uh, Those who are in the faith will remain in the faith and will hold to the faith until the end. Okay? But both people who believe that, I, I subscribe to that. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I think that is scriptural. The book of Hebrews has a lot to say about that. But even those who reject that will agree, typically, both of those people will typically agree that someone who doesn't persevere is not really a believer and possibly never was, that they believed in vain. So Paul's telling them, hold fast to this message that you believed, unless you believed in vain, unless you didn't really get it, unless you didn't really consider it, unless you you were just kind of believing haphazardly. And Jesus has some things to say about those types of folks in the parable of the seeds, which we'll get to maybe another time. That's all the end of my introduction. So this is the message of the gospel, and we've got to get the gospel right. We can't assume the gospel. We can't just assume that everybody knows the gospel. Oh, I'm a church, but well, yeah, but I want to, let's go a little deeper. I just want to make sure you understand the gospel. I want to make sure you understand the glories of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and that you truly, as much as we could tell, believe the gospel. How did that look for Paul? Well, point number one, if you're taking notes, the priority of the gospel for Paul. The gospel was central for Paul. The gospel was central for Paul. If you're taking notes, just write the gospel is central because that's what I mean, meant to put there and I totally messed up the slide. Okay, I just realized that. So I just put the gospel is central. The gospel is central. What does this mean? It's of first importance for Paul that he passed on that which was of first importance. He dedicated himself to while he was among this, the Corinthian church to knowing nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. The importance of the message the priority of it. What did Paul do? This is putting the gospel in the driver's seat. It's saying, hey, we're going along and the gospel is driving. The message of the gospel is not to be placed in the background like some kind of scenery or stage dressing. It should not be relegated to simply being part of a statement of faith on the page of the church website. 
We should not be saving the gospel for special occasions or basically treating it like it's an afterthought, like it's a, a trailer that you're just tagging along behind you, the church. According to Jared Wilson, it should be a hallmark and centerpiece of what a church does, all that a church does. Philippians 3.16, Paul writes, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So that which, again, that which we've attained, that which we believed, we should hold true to it. Paul even begins his letters. I alluded to this earlier. You can look through Paul's writings. He begins his letters to the churches, to other Christians, with gospel proclamations of various different lengths. But why would he not? Paul understood that the very thing that must mark our understanding of what we're doing here is that we are unable to change without the gospel. We are unable to change. People don't change without the gospel. That's what God uses to change people is the gospel. And that's why it must drive everything we do. And, And I think this plays out in a few ways when we talk about the gospel being central. I think, number one, we've got to recover the supernaturality of prayer. I'm not even sure supernaturality is a word, but I'm going to use it. We've got to recover the supernatural nature of prayer, the supernaturality of prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is expressed helplessness. Prayer says, God, you've got to change me. God, you've got to change people because only you can. I am helpless to do it. Only you have the power to do it. I can try all I want. I'm not going to change myself. Unless the Holy Spirit works within me, And yes, we do have a grace-fueled effort that we give, okay? So if you want to read the Bible more, it's not just going to happen. You're going to have to sit down and open your Bible, okay? So, So yes... But that desire to change and the power to, with, to uh, maintain it comes from the Holy Spirit of God. Prayer is expressed helplessness. I didn't make that phrase up. The brother of a seminary student came to visit him one day. Unsure of the directions, he turned to the first person that he passed by and he asked, Is this Davidson Hall? On hearing the man described later, the seminary student asked his brother if he realized that he'd been talking to a world-famous theologian. The brother couldn't believe it. He had the opportunity to ask any question, and he asked only where a building was. Unfortunately, that's how many of us pray. We talk to God, and we ask for inane little things that are really insignificant because we've We've discounted the supernaturality of prayer. That we pray, that we pray, and that God changes people. We pray, and God changes people. Now, some may say, Pastor, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, which I do, and that God's in control, which I do, then why would you bother praying for things if God's just going to do what God's going to do? So why would you bother praying for lost people to come to know Jesus if you believe God's just going to do what he's going to do? Well, let me tell you what I heard John Piper, who's a well-known pastor and author, say one time in a message. I was listening to him preach a message at a conference on missions. The message was on missions. And he said the same thing. He's like, People want to ask, you know, Pastor John, if you believe that, why? Well, well, then why pray? And he said, 
Here's why. How does a nail get into a board? With a hammer. Why? Because God ordained and designed that the way that nail gets into that board is you strike it with a hammer. Right? Or an air hammer. Whatever. The reason we pray and then God moves, we pray for people and God changes people, we pray and God changes us, is because that's the way God ordained it to work. We pray for the lost and the lost come to know Christ. Now, not all of them, okay? That doesn't happen every time because many of you know you've been praying for your brother, sister, mother, father, cousin, co-worker, and they haven't come to know Jesus yet. But God ordained that we, as the church, should come together, that we should pray for people to come to know Jesus, that we should pray for the Lord to send workers to the harvest, that we should pray for ourselves to change. And that's how it works. The Lord answers the prayers of his people. So we've got to recover the supernaturality of prayer. Secondly, we've got to recover the supernaturality of Scripture. Recover the supernaturality of Scripture. This is God's holy word. His infallible, inerrant word to us. In which he reveals himself to us. He reveals Jesus to us. We've got to get back to the supernaturality of Scripture, to understanding that this, this book is not a list of helpful life tips. Okay? This is not uh, a to-do list for spiritual betterment programs. Okay? It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. Right? Is that, that's the old acronym, right? It's not that. It is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Oh, and by the way, the Word became flesh, and that's Jesus. Okay? So we've got to get back to recovering the supernaturally of Scripture that we believe that God spoke to His people through the Word, and when we read it, when we study it, when we understand it, when we apply it to our lives, that's the means by which God changes us. We've got to believe in the supernaturality of Scripture because we've got to believe that just preaching the Word is enough. That if that's how God speaks and that's how God changes people, then preaching the Bible is enough. We don't have to have a bunch of gimmicks, a bunch of programs. Now, programs, not bad, okay? Again, please don't hear me say programs are bad. But when we start out with, oh, what's a program we could do to get people attracted to the church first? We're starting wrong. We've got to start with the fact that the Bible is enough, that Jesus is enough, that the message of the gospel is enough, because that's really what people need. People don't need better child care. People don't need more stuff to do. They don't need another uh, event to go to. Again, those things are not bad. We're going to have an event this afternoon. Really excited about it. I heard there's going to be cheesecake. All right? So, so those things aren't bad. But that can't be where we start. Oh, we got to get more people to church, so we better do this and this and this, and we better change this, and, well, we got to shorten the we got to, whatever. No. No, 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 no. That's not where we start. We start with the gospel. And we got to recover the supernaturality of Scripture. So I want to I list a, a, a few points about the gospel 
about the, what the gospel does, what the gospel is, and why the gospel must be at the forefront of what we do as a church. And look, it's important that we understand this. I know we're getting into the weeds a little bit, um, but we need to be in these weeds because we need to understand, like, in a year, in two years, in three years, when we are making decisions about what we're going to do ministry-wise and things like that, like, we, I want you all to understand why. And I want us to be on the same page with why we do what we do. It's because the gospel is central and forefront. And I will stand on the gospel, on the word of God. Number one, the gospel is effectual. The gospel is effectual to change people. The gospel is effectual to change the church. The gospel is effectual to bring families together, to save marriages, to rescue wayward children. See, friends, we've got to change the measure of success. We've got to change the measure of success. Some of this makes us uneasy. Why does it make us uneasy? Like some of you are sitting, you're hearing these things, you're like, yeah, but what are we going to do? Yeah, but what are we going to do? You're, think, you're thinking it in your minds, because I'm guilty of that too. Like we tend to skew pragmatic, like, well, other churches are doing this, this worked for them, we should do that. No, that, that's not, again, that's not where we start, guys. Some of us, this makes us uneasy because we're not sure how to measure it. Oh, sure, we, we know how to measure how many seats are full on a Sunday morning, and we know how to measure how many names are on the roll or how many people are baptized in a given year. But how do you measure spiritual growth? How do you measure what I'm talking about? How do you measure gospel-centeredness or gospel-drivenness? Well, Jonathan Edwards, one of my old dead guys, had what, what we're calling his metrics of grace. His metrics of grace. So how do you measure someone growing in grace? How do you measure that? Well, you can't really measure spiritual growth. There's not, I mean, there's not like a ruler you get it out, and, you know, right? How do you measure someone's sanctification? Well, Jonathan Edwards had these five points that we're going to call his metrics of grace. The first one is that there should be a growing esteem for Jesus Christ, a growing esteem for Jesus Christ. Those who follow Jesus, who have believed and trusted the gospel should be growing in their love for Jesus. They should love Jesus more the longer they know him. Just like, well, more so, but if you've been married for a long time, if you talk to people that are married 40, 50 years, they'll say, well, I love him more than the day I met him. Or I love her more than the day I met him. Because you ought to be growing in your esteem, in your love for Jesus Christ. Number two, a discernible spirit of repentance. If someone claims to know Jesus and also claims that they never need to repent of sin, they're lying about something. Because the Bible tells us that if we claim to be without sin, we're calling God a liar. Because God says we have sin. So there should be a discernible spirit of repentance. In other words, we're not, we know we're not perfect. And people say, well, 
people in the church think they're better than me or they're just a bunch of hypocrites. And yeah, what you need to understand is we need to be the people who are examples, not just of what it looks like to live following Christ, but what it looks looks like to live a life of repentance. Martin Luther said that, that when a person becomes, uh, becomes a believer, they're basically coming to become a repenter, a life of repentance of our sin. Number third, a dogged devotion to the Word of God. This means even when I don't feel it, even when I'm, I'm having trouble understanding, that I'm still devoted to diving into the Word of God, to reading, to studying, to knowing God and His Word. The number one indicator, you've heard me say this, I've been here a year, you've probably heard me say this 50 times, the number one indicator of spiritual growth in a person is engagement with the Word of God. Number four, an interest in theology and doctrine. Some people say, well, I I don't worry about all that deeper theology stuff, just give me Jesus. Well, you're not going to get to Jesus without some theology. Everyone's a theologian, whether they know it or not. So it's an interest in theology and doctrine, understanding the doctrines of God, understanding deeper things of the faith. That, by the way, are the gospel, and start with the gospel, the message of the gospel. You're not going to get there. You're not going to get there without it. Number five, an evident love for God and neighbor. The church is to be about... Love, I mean, church is to be about God, the gospel, okay, centered and driven by the gospel, but we should be known for our love and our unity. We should be unified and loving. We should have love for God and love for our neighbor. Those are Jonathan Edwards' metrics of grace of how we can look at sort of how, how we're doing in this area. Do we see a dogged devotion to the Word of God? Do we see an interest in the deeper things of God? In understanding more of how the gospel connects with everything else? Do we have an evident love for God, an evident love for our neighbor in what we do and and say? Is there a discernible spirit of repentance among us? And a growing esteem and deeper love for Jesus. Point number three, the gospel's versatile. So not only is the gospel effectual for changing and is the only thing that will change and grow us as believers in Christ, the gospel is versatile. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the gospel will apply to all situations in our lives. The gospel is versatile. It is not only that which saves us. It is not only the message by which we come to faith in Christ. It is the message by which we hold to faith in Christ as well and live out our faith in Christ. Number four, the gospel works. The gospel works. How does the gospel work? Well, first of all, in our passage today, Paul, we see Paul assume a humble status, right? Oh, well, I'm the least of all. He knew who he was, that he had persecuted the church of God. And he assumes this humble status. And what does this show us? Well, it shows us a couple of things. But what I want you to get is that the gospel of grace produces real life change. This is an illustration. 
Paul is an illustration of that. Jesus met him, absolutely thumped him, changed his life. He went from one who was present at the first, the, the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr we have recorded in Scripture, that was there and they laid their cloaks at his feet, to he was on his way to Damascus to get the Christians and put them in chains and bring them back. He, went, we, he goes from that to writing a good portion of the New Testament by the Spirit of God. To being a church planter and missionary all over. Because the gospel, because the grace of God produces real life change. Measurable by those metrics of grace. Wilson points out, a gospel-driven church makes the gospel the unifying and motivating factor in everything they say and do. Folks, gospel above all. Gospel above all. We unify around the gospel. We motivate from the gospel. And everything we say and do as a church is to be driven by the gospel. The gospel affects the church in these ways. Number one, the gospel makes the church. You don't have the church without the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is the very thing that formed the church. Number two, it makes the church one. The gospel makes the church one with Christ and one with each other. It is the reason why there are several of us in this room sitting here or standing here who have nothing else in common at all except for Jesus. And we can be one with one another because of our shared adoption into the family of God. Number three, the church makes, excuse me, the gospel makes the church unique. Friends, there is no other message like the gospel in any other religion out there. Number one, every other religious leader in the world who started religions is... Bones in a grave. Our God is alive. He was in a grave and walked out three days later. The gospel makes the church unique. It makes us able to say, no, you don't have to be perfect to be here. Like I said for the last two weeks, if you're perfect, you ought to leave now because we'll mess you up. You don't have to be perfect to live, to, to be here because we have a God who died to take care of those imperfections and sins. Number four, the gospel makes the church powerful. Without the gospel, we have no power. You go to a church, you hear a guy preach, and you ask yourself, could that sermon have been true if Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead? That's not a very Christian sermon. If all you're getting is life tips... Number five, the gospel makes the church holy. The gospel is what purifies, what sets the church apart as holy for the use of God. And number six, the gospel makes the church missional. It gives us our mission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. So our mission to make disciples comes from the gospel. It is what gives us our mission. 
And it is our mission to make disciples who make disciples. So at this point, I'm going to actually invite the musicians to come up. I want to I kind of wrap up by just talking a minute about the gather, grow, go vision that I shared about last week. And I want to show you how it connects with what we're talking about today. And that's this. We said we want to gather together, grow deep, and go wide. Gather together, grow deep, and go wide. So how does this connect with our direction? Well, let me show you. Gather together. Gospel centrality when we gather together in our preaching. Preaching that connects the big story of the Bible, that connects it to Jesus. Like Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. We're not going to go there, but you can check it out in Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. Jesus meets these two guys on the road to Emmaus, and uh, he's disguised. They don't, he doesn't allow them to recognize who he is. And they're like, don't you know what's been going on? And he's like, no, what's, what's been going on in Jerusalem? And they're like, oh, Jesus was crucified. And t- so then he goes with them and he teaches them about all the scriptures and how they connect to him. Which, by the way, was the entire, would have been the Old Testament because that's the scripture they had at that point. We... When we gather together, we focus on the gospel as central to our preaching. We connect the big story of the Bible. I said earlier, it's not just a book of life skills. It's actually the narrative of how God created the world and, and we sin and God redeemed us. And how he's returning for his church someday. We have gospel centrality in our worship. We will sing the gospel, pray the gospel Behold the Savior together and glory in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ when we gather together. That's how we gather together, gospel-driven, gospel-centered. Well, how do we grow deep together, gospel-centered and gospel-driven? Well, we understand the connections of the gospel to everything we deal with in life. We, We strive to understand that, to apply it to everything we deal with. We're pushed to dwell deeply, to behold the deep riches of the truth of the Word of God, to treat each other with love and accountability. To be patient, loving, and deeply unified around our common love for Jesus and our identity as those he died for as a substitutionary sacrifice. And how does gospel centrality impact going wide? Well, number one, to to understand and apply the gospel to our interactions as we're out in the local community with our friends and our neighbors, our associates, with the barista at the coffee shop and the bag boy at the grocery store. To seek for the gospel to be known around the world where it is not currently. There's a global mission that we are a part of as the church. To proclaim the message of the true gospel and to dispel any false gospels or false understandings of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Here's what we come to the table with. There's a church in Nashville called Emmanuel Nashville. And uh, they have this saying, they call it their mantra, if you will, um, 
But they use it to explain who they are and what they're about. And it's quite simple. It's got three parts. It says, uh, I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. And anybody can get in on this. And at first glance, I was like, well, I don't, I don't like the way. I've got some deeper issues with that. And I started kind of pulling it apart. And I'm like, no, I, I like that. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. And anybody can get on, in on this. What they're saying is, I'm a complete idiot. I messed this up. I, I sin. And left to my own devices, I'm going to mess this thing up. It's coming to terms with our own sinfulness. That, wow, I can't do this life on my own because I actually was created by someone, was designed in a certain way, And only he knows what I need to do and how to do it. So it's it's quite simple. I'm a complete idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. See, the people from their church say this, who are members, who, who have professed Christ. And if you've professed Christ, if you trusted in Christ, then whatever we're going through now, whatever it is, our future is incredibly bright because we have eternity with Jesus to look forward to. The world is going to be hard. We will struggle. We will suffer. But no matter what we go through, we can do it because of the, what, the joy set before us, the hope we have in eternity with Jesus. My future is incredibly bright. And number three, anybody can get in on this. If you are hearing the sound of my voice, whether you're online or here in person, and you've heard the message of the gospel, then you are faced with a choice if you're going to trust Jesus or not. And to those who trust in him, he gives you the right to become the children of God, to be adopted in the family of God. Folks, it's not about attracting people to church. It's not about having a social program for every age group. Those things aren't necessarily bad, but when you start to design and build a church based on activity and programs, you very quickly get out of whack. And we've seen that over the years with the attractional movement, the seeker-sensitive church, and all that. Jesus said in Scripture that he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Folks, gates are defensive. Gates are not weapons. They're, They're things of defense. Jesus will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're to be advancing. We are the kingdom of blood-bought, redeemed sinners advancing with the gospel. And this says the fires of hell, the gates of hell, cannot defeat the church because Jesus, because Jesus. We get this idea that like the world is, the gates of hell are coming for us and we're hunkered down and we're like, Oh, we've got to stand up against it. Gates don't advance. Gates are there for defense to keep people out. We, the kingdom of God, created by God through the gospel, should be the ones advancing. Now that'll light your fire. That'll light your fire. Stand up with me, please. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing. And this morning, there's a couple of different people that might be out there. Number one, you may have heard the gospel message of 
Jesus' death on your behalf, on the cross, in your place. You may have heard that for the first time. And you're wanting to know more about how you can know Jesus, know you have eternal life with him in heaven, and know how you can live your life by this gospel. And I would love to talk with you afterwards. You can come talk to me, talk to one of the deacons. We'd love to share with you how you can know Jesus. There may be somebody out there who says, you know what, I've been living my life like it's all about all this religious activity and not really being centered and focused on the gospel. And you just need to ask the Lord to help you focus and recenter upon the gospel. There's a third person out there, and you may be, man, you've been hanging around part of the church for a long time, and you think, you know, I need to be a part of what's going on here, and you need to come talk to me about maybe becoming a member of the church or or joining in our mission and ministry. Maybe you've been here a long time, you've been a member a long time, but you don't have a place to serve, and you want to find something you can do to serve and, and I'd be happy to talk with you about that this week. Uh, you just reach out to me in any way. Um, if anybody needs to talk, I'll be at the back when, when you leave. Um, or we can set up a time later on in the week as well. But this is a time of decision. This is a time to say, okay, I've heard the word proclaimed. What am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. For these people who I love so dearly. God, help us to trust that the gospel's enough. God, that, that it is key to our understanding all of you and everything in Scripture. God, we'll never get to the bottom of all of understanding you, but, but reveal to us little by little. Help us believe and understand. God, if there are those who, here who don't know you, I pray today would be their day of salvation, would be the day they trust in you. God, we want to go with you. And if it's not of you, we don't want it. Help us follow faithfully and obediently your guidance every day, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.